Well, good evening, church. If you will take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Chapter 2. We're going to start there. As you're turning there, let me go before the Lord one more time and make sure we have divine help. Father, I want to remind myself of my total need, my total dependence upon you. Father, the work that we desire and the work that you intend is supernatural work. It's not work that's done with flesh and blood, not swords and spears, not self-help methods and techniques. We need to be changed by your Spirit. Lord, we know that you've committed to do that. And so, Father, we are hoping, we are faithfully hoping and hopeful that you'll do that tonight. Lord, I pray that for my heart you would do a lot of that. And for those who are gathered here, these precious friends, Lord, we want you to be cherished and treasured in our heart. And so would you accomplish that? So, Father, to that end, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and be forgotten. Just let the word of God remain. Let it be cherished. Let it be obeyed. And then it will bear fruit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we are picking up tonight on the second of what has turned into three sermons on the famous story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And tonight we're going to plop right back into the middle of the story, a story that is so incredibly important, not simply because of how famous it is or how exciting it is or even how memorable it is, but because how central it is to the book and the theme of Samuel and how central it is to the revelation of God in his word. The key ideas of Samuel are illustrated in this chapter in dramatic, jaw-dropping ways. We did this two weeks ago, and I'm afraid that we'll be off next week, and so we'll have to do, uh, we'll pick up again two weeks from now, but let me do a brief review of what we talked about in the first, I think we did 30 or so verses of this long chapter. But remember, one of the key things to keep in mind as you understand 1 Samuel 17, is we need to pay attention to the way that the author uses comparisons and contrast. I realize I told you to turn to 1 Samuel 2, and now I'm doing a review of 1 Samuel 17. So maybe flip over to 17, and then we'll go back to 2, and then we'll go back to 17, and then we'll all be lost, right? Okay, so let's, let's briefly review, and we have to remember how much the author uses the techniques of comparing and contrasting. The, the more I've studied this passage, the more I've seen that is a key to understanding and unlocking what the author is doing here. We need to pay close attention especially to how the author compares Saul to Goliath and Goliath to Satan, which we'll see more of. And if we read the story with New Testament eyes, we need to see even ways that David is compared to Jesus. We also need to pay attention to contrast, the way the author contrasts Saul with David and then Goliath with David. Okay, so there's a lot of contrasting that's going on here. The chapter begins with a familiar scene. 
Israel is standing once again on the edge of the promised land and what? They are afraid of giants. I say it like that because it is freakishly familiar to Numbers chapter 13. Or perhaps you remember that 12 spies are sent into the land of Canaan to spy, to spy out the promised land that they are getting ready to, to take. And they come back and what do the 12 spies say? The land is full of what? Giants, right? Giants. And it's been interesting. I've been reading in Deuteronomy and I cannot get over how many times, I did not notice this before, how many times God is saying, when you go into the land and when it's very scary and when they're giants, trust me, trust me, trust me. He says it multiple times in Deuteronomy. It's as if he knows what's going to happen. It's amazing. So they come back from the land and they say, it's full of giants. And God's response is really severe. God is so angry with Israel. He is so angry with this lack of faith that he wants to destroy them. He wants to kill millions of people. Fear is a significant sin. It's not trusting God. That's what he wants to do. But Moses intercedes, and instead God sends them into the wilderness, and they wander for how many years? 40 years, until the whole generation dies. But here they are, generations and generations later, and they are now in the promised land, and what are they doing? Committing the same sin, afraid of giants. Their sin is ultimately the sin of unbelief. They did not trust that the God they worshipped could deliver them. That is a very common struggle for us, isn't it? We don't trust that God can help us and deliver us. Faith is central. It is the central issue of our lives. It is the call of the Christian life. It is what brings us in to salvation and it is what keeps us. Faith It is the action, it is the activity of the Christian heart to trust in God. Well, for Israel, this time they are now in the promised land, but what's happened? They are once again faced with a giant. But this is not just any giant. This is the epitome of all giants, the very essence of evil. We can't go through this again tonight. You can listen to it online if you like. But the text gives us some very dramatic clues that actually compare Goliath to a serpent. Specifically because of his armor. It says that his armor is scale-like. We have a giant who is covered in scales and he comes out mocking the living God. That sounds like a figure that I met in the garden, right? This monstrous serpent. And not only that, for 40 days, Israel is tested. This giant serpent is testing Israel. He is in essence saying, are you not servants of Saul? The one, the the servant, the king of the most high God? Do you trust your God or not? If you do, come fight me. And once again, what does Israel do? Fail the test. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness with all the things they had seen and everything up to that point and then the amazing conquests of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, did it teach them anything? 
They have these same hard, unbelieving, sinful hearts. How in the world is God going to save this people? How is he going to put up with them? And so once again, Israel is facing destruction and I think annihilation. So God does what he has to do so many times. He sends a rescuer. David is the spirit-filled, anointed king of Israel, but he is not the king that you would have ordered. He is not what anybody, even his brothers, even Samuel, he's not what anybody would expect. And apparently, God delights to slay giants, serpent giants, in really unconventional ways. David is not much to look at. He is the youngest in his family. It's a very important point. And in the text, we have just read, as we saw last time, that he's despised by his brothers. He's despised by Saul. And we'll see tonight that he was despised by Goliath. He's despised and rejected by everyone. While all the world is looking at the outward appearance of David, God is looking at something else. And God is up to something that will surprise everyone. Now, before we move on to our text tonight, we're going to take the middle section of Samuel 17. I just cannot help but go back to the very beginning of Samuel, chapter 2, to Hannah's song, which I think really helps us interpret the whole book of Samuel, especially chapter 17. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when I preached on this, uh, whenever I preached on this, I think I remember saying something like, we're going to talk about chapter 2 so much that we don't even need to talk about it much right now. And, uh, and I haven't done that because of all these other things to talk about, but it is, we could, have, we could, we could reference chapter 2 in every text that we do in 1 Samuel. But tonight, I want to remind you of a couple things from the psalm. Uh, from this song or this prayer here in chapter 2. I'm not going to take the time to read all of it. We've got some more text to read. But I do want to remind you of three key themes that I think you can notice just by referencing them. And I think that uh, it would help us if we have these three themes in the back of our mind as we study David and Goliath. Okay? So, if we were to categorize Hannah's ideas in this song, we'd see these three themes. First of all, The proud are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. The tall are humbled, and the humbled are raised up. Look at verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength, or my horn, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, your translation there in verse 1 may say, uh, My strength is exalted in the Lord. Show of hands, who has my strength? Okay? Does anyone have my horn? Okay, it's this, right, the ESV actually changed it. At first they had horn and then they changed it to strength in the update. But I think it's really helpful here, and, and that's, a, that's a fine translation. But the, the picture is, the picture of a horn is actually really helpful for us here. Hannah is rejoicing that her horn, or her strength, is being exalted by God. Now, let's think about this image here for a moment. You have to consider the anatomy of the mighty ram. If you'd like to, you can think of the mascot of the North Carolina Tar Heels. Perhaps that would help you. I think it's helpful. Wherever you get your ram image, think of those big twisted horns that are coming off of the head, right? A ram flaunts its strength and its power by doing what? 
flaunting its horns, right? The horns are a sign of its strength. Hannah is saying God has given her horns. God has given her strength. He has made her strong. And if you remember Hannah, she's not a candidate for strength, right? She's a barren, depressed, despised woman. Yet God has made her strong. Verses 2 through 3 make it clear that God despises, and this is so important, church, God despises anyone who raises his own horn. It is so important for the book of Samuel. Pride is absolutely repugnant to God. Look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, the word that is used here for pride and arrogance is a very important word in Hebrew. All right. Now, I have often promised that I would not talk much about languages up here. I really try to stick with that. But y'all are the smart crowd. And tonight, I'm going to make an exception. And we're going to start with a very, I think, interesting and stimulating um, and revealing uh, little discussion about this in a moment. Okay. Now, in other places, this word is translated tall. Okay. Got it. Plug this away. For now, we could say it like this. In verse 3, so talk no more so very tallly. Let not tallness come out of your mouth. You get it? Don't let the, ba- the Tower of Babel come out of your mouth. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, let's just start by saying, in Samuel, God detests pride and tallness. Theme number one. Theme number two, human expectations are reversed by God. Right? All throughout Samuel, are we not seeing this? Look what she says. The strong are defeated in battle while the weak prevail. Verse 4. Verse 5. The well-fed, well, they starve. And those who are hungry, what do they do? Well, they feast. Verse 5 again. The mother of many children, she's going to lose all her children. But the barren woman, she gets seven children. Verse 8. The poor are lifted up from the dust, and what do they do? They sit with princes, even shepherds sit on thrones. That's so interesting. On and on and on. Okay, so human expectations are reversed by God. A third theme. God's plan is for a new world order. Look over at verse 10. God has set in motion a plan to bring about a whole new world order. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. you got to read that in context of the whole Bible. His Messiah, right? What's the word for Messiah? Anointed one, right? His Messiah will come and rule the world. But his anointed will not come with human strength. He will not come as the world expects. He will come in the way of the Messiah. You with me? Okay, now let's do a little excursus for a moment. I want to go back to this theme of being tall or being humbled, okay? Let's trace this a little bit through the book of Samuel. I I try not to get too technical, but I'm going to make a rare exception tonight and ask that you bear with me. Because all throughout the book of Samuel, there's a play on words in Hebrew that we cannot get in English. It's not really, not really possible. And it is just too good. I've been, I've been studying this for months and I've mostly resisted saying it. I just can't do it anymore. It's just too interesting, right? I think you'll agree. 
I'll spare you the technical details, but let me just give you one Hebrew word. Geboa. Okay? Geboa. That is translated tall or proud. Alright? The key thing to know, remember, how does God feel about Geboa? He hates it. He despises it. Talk no more so very Geboa. Let not Geboa come out of your mouth. Okay? Do you see that in chapter 2, verse 3? Now, let's think about this for a moment. When Israel chose a king, what did they want? A Geboa king, right? A tall king. Now, guess where Saul happens to be from? A place called Gibeah. It's like, the, in Hebrew, the only difference is a little accent mark. It's almost the same word, right? The, Gib- the Geboa guy is from, yeah, Tallville, right? Proud, Proudville. The Geboa is from Gibeah, all right? Now, why is Saul rejected by God? He is rejected, and, and God instead chooses the very opposite of Geboa. I don't know the Hebrew word for that, but it's small, right? Youngest, David the youngest. God's spirit moves away from Geboa to the very opposite of Geboa. Because God looks at the heart, right? So God moves from the tallest in Israel to, we could say, the smallest in Israel. I like to think of this progression. Take this phrase with you tonight. God moves from tall to small. Terry, save your jokes, right? Now, think ahead to David and Goliath, and you'll see why we're talking about this. Goliath is a giant. Guess what the word for giant is? Geboa, right? Okay, he is tall. He is a giant. Goliath, the very essence, the very epitome of Geboa, is now standing here before Israel. Now, think of all of the details that we have here in chapter 17. The whole scene is set up with the purpose of contrasting the tall and the short, the strong and the weak, the proud and the humble. The scene goes through all of these details. There's 58 verses in this chapter. Do you know how many cover the battle? Two, right? Two. Everything else is drama, is background, it's setting, it's giving you all these details to make this clear to us. The author wants to say, don't miss this point, right? Making it very clear to us. And so he highlights so many things. The strength of Goliath and then the apparent weakness of David. And now if we read with our big Bible lenses, right? What we notice is that there's much more than just an encounter with David and Goliath going here. This is an encounter between God and the world, between God and Satan, between God and you remember Dagon, right? Little Dagon, the idol. How did that story end? With the idol God, Dagon, on the ground, lost his head. Man, that sounds really familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Just like Dagon, Goliath ends on the ground, which is the opposite of tall, by the way. If you're on the ground, opposite of tall. Where do snakes crawl? On the ground, right? Uh, He ends up at the opposite of tall, on the ground, without a head. Now, remember, in this story, David and Goliath are very, very similar. The author is making a big effort to compare Saul with Goliath and even at times with 
the essence of godlessness. I'll just say it like that. If we were to flash forward to Saul's death at the very end of Samuel, here's how it ends. The tall one, Geboa, from, guess where Saul's from? Gibeah, man, collapses and guess where he dies? In mountains called Gilboa. You can't make this up, right? In Hebrew, these, there's th- three consonants. They're all the same in all these words, right? It is making a clear point. And what does David say when Saul dies? How the mighty have fallen. Do you see what's going on here? Guess who takes Saul's place? The little guy, right? Do you get the point? God despises He despises pride. He is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the small, the humble. God will remove the proud and mighty rulers of the world, and he's going to put in the one who seems to be the little guy, the donkey-riding, crucified little guy. The point of Hannah's song and the point of David and Goliath is this to highlight all of the themes of Hannah's song. Hannah's song celebrates the birth of a child from a barren woman. That sounds familiar. Celebrates the birth of a child from a barren woman that rises to a position of great influence, high and lifted up at the right hand of God, right? And it celebrates how God will demolish and reverse all Geboah, all pride, We see this, that God is going to demolish the power structures of the world and he's going to put in place his man, his shepherd king child on the throne. And he's going to do it in the most surprising ways. But God is going to demolish all worldly power structures and install his king and his king is going to bring justice and peace and order back to the world. He is going to undo everything that went wrong in the garden and he's going to reign again. I suppose we could call that the main idea of this passage. That God demolishes the power structures of this world in favor of his own. Or you could say like this. God uses the small, not the tall. So, we should probably read our text. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll start in verse 31 and we'll read to 47, okay? When the words that David, this is right after talking to Eliab, his his jealous brother, When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear... Deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved, toward, moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. But the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come with me, come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David and by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, and to the beasts, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What a text. Let's see how these themes that we've just introduced develop as we continue to contrast David with Saul and Goliath. I'd like to draw your attention to three specific contrasts. The first I'm calling eyes of faith. We ended in 28 through 30 last time with Eliab's rebuke of David for his willingness to fight Goliath. And then we hear about David's intention specifically when he goes before King Saul. There in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, right, namely me, will go and fight the Philistine, okay? You see, even though David was convinced that there was a champion in Israel, he had to convince the cowering Saul, Israel's champion, right, hiding his champion, the tall guy, that there was a champion in Israel. And as we said last time, Saul, the baggage dweller, had no courage. He had probably wet his frock. David had to convince him that Goliath could be defeated. There's a really kind of a sense where Saul is Israel's Goliath. The tall, spiritless enemy of God. David had to get past him first. And David will be at odds with him for the rest of his life. And so here we see David, the shepherd boy, having more courage than any of the mighty men of Israel. In verse 33, Saul objects to David's request, and he calls into question David's military credentials. What qualified David to take on Goliath? Now notice how Saul immediately is despising David for what? His youth. Verse 33, you are but a youth, and Goliath has been a warrior since he was a youth, right? 
Saul says, in essence, the very same thing that Goliath says. Did you catch that? Saul's saying the same thing to David that Goliath. He says, you are but a youth. If you jump ahead and look at verse 42, you'll see this. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. Probably didn't shave yet, right? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Saul and Goliath are saying the same thing to David. Fighting is a man's job. You can almost hear Saul saying, this is for the soldiers. This is for the men. Yet, where were the men of Israel? It appears that Goliath and Saul shared the same worldview. They saw life the same way. They would do a simple visual inspection. They would employ the tools of reason and logic and they would conclude, okay, he is stronger than you, therefore this cannot be done. He's big, you're small. He's got experience, you take care of sheep, right? You can't win. They despise David based on what? Appearances, outward appearances. This is how the world operates. They did not even consider God in the equation. They did not pause to think about it. Yet that is the pattern of the world. The ungodly have a way of viewing the world that only accounts for outward appearances. Let's not be like them. They are men of science or reason, they say. They have to have it proven to them. Never considering that there could be, that there is a God in heaven. So they size up the world and they size up the situations of their lives only with human power. You'll notice that Saul and Goliath really are two sides of the same coin of pride. Both were equally proud. They were both equally Geboa and self-sufficient. But their circumstances were different. Goliath looked at his strength and his armor and he said, I'm good, right? That's pride. Saul looked at his strength and his armor and he says, "Uh uh-oh, I can't do it. That's also pride. Goliath had strong pride. Saul had weak pride. Goliath was brash and arrogant, but Saul was dejected and downcast. Both are forms of pride. Why? Because they both place emphasis on on human strength, as if that is all there is, either by the presence of it or the lack of it. Think about how much this affects your life. Your pity party and your depression can be just as arrogant as your brazen boasting. Your lack of prayer can be just as arrogant as talking arrogantly to another person or a haughty thought. Goliath's courage depended on what? His strength. Saul's lack of courage was because of what? His lack of strength. It's the same dynamic. Both of them had placed their trust in human ability, ingenuity, and strength. Both of them, you could say, lived and trusted in the power structures of the world. Our world and its structures value strength, skill, power, beauty, credentials, resumes, right? They trust only what they can see. And that's what Saul and Goliath did. But not David. 
There's a different way of viewing the world, and that is through the eyes of faith. David had a totally different perspective. Now, remember, man is attracted to the tall, but God is attracted to the small. David answers Saul's objection in a very interesting way. He gives us his hunting resume. It's very interesting, right? Can you imagine trying to get into the military? I hunt squirrels. Don't worry. But it's a pretty interesting resume. David had grabbed a lion by the beard and killed it. (laughs) That's cool. Apparently, he also killed bears. Also cool. Which is impressive. But last time I checked, lions don't carry spears. So Goliath is definitely a bigger problem. So why is David telling us all this? I mean, why is David making this point? Is he bragging? Is he just operating by the structures of the world? Right? Is he just giving his resume, giving his credentials, saying, hey, look at me, I'm bigger than you think, right? You're, you're not sizing me up. Some of the world interprets this. That's not what he's doing at all. We get the clue in verse 37. Look what David says. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What is impressive about David's hunting resume is the blessing and the presence of the Lord. Who does David credit with his deliverance from the lion and the bear? The Lord. The Lord. There are Christians with the power of God and those who claim to be Christians who do not live in the power of God. David could see what Israel and Saul and Eliab and Goliath, what they could not see. While Israel saw the height of Goliath and trembled, David considered God, the one who stretches his hands across the heavens and holds the earth in his palm. He considered God. And David had already learned to trust God in the pastures and in the fields. And he was ready to put that experience to the test on the battlefield. David simply applies the lesson of the pasture to the situation at hand. He had learned God delivers his servants. God delivers his servants. So David simply looked back on his experience of God's faithfulness. And what happened? He found new faith. He was emboldened for battle today. Church, here's the thing. David had experienced God's deliverance from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. And that gave him fresh faith. How great a testimony do we need for faith in our circumstances? What do we need to see God do? Right? What, what is God's resume lacking for you? Right? What, what is he lacking? What, have you not read the scriptures? How many other ways of God's deliverance could we even imagine? I can't imagine anything else. We have every conceivable scenario. He parted water and they walked across on dry land. We have water flowing out of rocks. We have pillars of fire. We got food falling from the air. We got shoes that don't, that don't wear out. What else does God have to do to prove to us he's going to take care of us? And yet we fret. And we worry, and we scoff, and we whine, and we complain. What else does he have to do? He gave his son for you. Will he not also give you all things? Do you see the dynamic of faith here? God is still a God who works on behalf of his people. 
And we need to give him proper credit for all the acts of salvation that are on his resume. But if you don't read the Bible, you don't know them. And they're not fresh in your heart. And then we can put them on our resume. Because he's a God who acts on our behalf. David could see it. Saul, Israel, alive, Goliath. They couldn't see it. They didn't have eyes to see it. Church, let me remind you. Faith is the very essence of our life. Hebrews 11, chapter 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. Then verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is life. But let us now turn to the matter of Saul's armor. Where we will see that above all else, and this is the second contrast, David is a king unlike the kings of the nations. So now let's compare Saul and David. There's so many comparisons back and forth, it was hard to organize them. I changed my mind a lot. Let's just compare Saul to David. In verse 37, Saul agrees to let David fight. And ironically, the one who had been abandoned by God tells the Lord's anointed, may the Lord be with you. There's all sorts of religious jargon and junk that doesn't mean anything. Just because people talk the talk doesn't mean anything. Saul has some skin in the game, though, and so he knows he does the only thing that he can do, all right? He tries to help. The king acts like the king of the nations. The king that is like the nations acts just like we would expect him to do, like other kings of the nations. And what do they do? Well, verse 38, we see Saul giving David his armor, weapons of flesh and blood, weapons that are just like Goliath has. Just smaller. There's a sense where Saul's armor is the miniature armor of Goliath. That's all that Saul knows to do. Right? That's what he does. He trusts in flesh and blood. He believes that power and strength is found in armor and in height. That's why he's scared. That's why he's not putting on the armor and going into battle. Just like Goliath, Saul trusts in armor. Saul is a king like the nations, just like Israel wanted. But not David. David is not a king like the nations. He is a shepherd who will face Goliath with the weapon of a shepherd. The weapon of a shepherd. The sling was good enough for the lion and the bear, so it's good enough for the giant serpent. But of course, it's not about the sling either. I'm convinced that David could have gone into battle with a fly swatter, and that outcome would have been exactly the same. David didn't trust in the sword or the sling. He trusted in the Lord. This reminds me of Jesus' rebuke to Peter in the garden, doesn't it? When he cut off the ear of Malchus. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you remember when Jesus stood before Pilate? What did he tell Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. We could also quote the armor of God from Ephesians 6. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world. And so it is fitting, I think, that David, the king in waiting, would act totally unlike the kings of the nations. 
Kind of like Jesus, who rode victoriously into Jerusalem, not on a tank, not on a noble steed, but on a donkey. And then he went to war. How? By hanging naked on a cross. He was mocked and scorned, much like David. They called him king of the Jews. If they only knew. Goliath and Saul trusted in the sword and the spear. But not David. And not Jesus. When Goliath mocked this very thing, right? He mocked David for his weapon, his stick, right? What did David say? Verse 45. You come at me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Do you remember Jesus saying, if I just said a word, a myriad of angels would come and pull me off the cross. Goliath died trusting in the spear. And so did Saul. I find it very interesting. If you've read Samuel, you know what happens after this. David and Saul are at odds the rest of the time. And almost every encounter that we have with with Saul, guess what he's holding? A spear. It's like he's dying with it in his hands. He trusts in the spear. I also can't help but smile at this thought of King David standing in Saul's armor. Right? Do you see the picture this gives us? It's kind of an ironic thought, isn't it? Last week, we saw David standing in Saul's courts, or two weeks ago, whenever, chapter 16. We saw David, the musician, standing in Saul's courts. He's getting ready to take over. And now here we see him standing in Saul's armor. But he won't be needing that. Soon, he'll be wearing Saul's crown and marrying his daughter. Right? He gets, he gets it all. Brothers and sisters, how many ways could we apply this? I'm afraid I'll have to leave that task to you, but just remember this. God is demolishing the power structures of this world in order to make a way for his kingdom. So let's not be found trusting in them at all. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. One more comparison. Let's say finally, let's talk finally about the zeal of David. If we are to continue our theme of contrasting David and Saul, we need to now contrast their view of God and their view of his glory, their zeal. For Saul, it is clear, God is small. Very small. He can't do big things. He's not worth trusting, not worth obeying, not worth worshiping, not worth defending not worth speaking of, might be dangerous, might be embarrassing. What would they think? He might kill me. So he did what all those with a small God do. They hide and they tremble in the baggage. They poke their head out when they can get something for themselves. But not David. David had a big God, a big God. And he was zealous to defend his honor before the nations. And in doing so, what did he do? He actually delivered his people which we'll talk about much more next time. Over and over again in the story, we read of David's motive. He was driven to act by his zeal for God, his love of the glory of God, not just what God could give him, but of who God is and what he was like and that all of Israel and all of the nations would see what kind of God he is. 
And as we've already seen, it was David's faith, not his stature, that qualified him to fight in the first place. So the scene that we have before us is a giant serpent spewing the venomous blasphemy of the original serpent. He's defying the living God and he's also wielding the power of death. His speech echoes the serpent's voice in the garden. It's the voice of blasphemy. I read one creative interpreter who said it like this. Blasphemy is a capital crime. And David was going to go out and stone Goliath to death. Isn't that good? Either way, it's clear that once Goliath started to defy God, he became beast-like. Makes me think of Nebuchadnezzar out eating grass like a beast. Or even one of the beasts that David had already killed with his bare hands. We'll talk about that more next time. But this picks up on a well-established theme in the Bible. We become like what we worship. Those who worship idols, the Bible says, will become like them. You may end up headless on the ground like Goliath and Dagon. But those who worship God, who are zealous for his glory, we become like him too. Loving what he loves. Delighting in what he delights in. For David, there's no other choice. He must act for the glory of God, the glory of his God, the Lord of hosts. David had faith in a big God. And big faith in a big God will lead to great acts of courage. Whether that's facing a diagnosis, taking the gospel to your coworker, courageously loving your children day after day, fighting that sin that entangles you, big faith in a big God will lead to great acts of obedience and courage. So let me ask you tonight, church, how big is your God? How strong are your eyes of faith? Because one thing is for sure, he's working. You just can't see most of it. Is that not the story of the Bible? So much of it, it is hidden. But we'll see it one day, won't we? Let's be people with eyes of faith. Let's pray that we would have eyes to see him as he is and do our part. Let's do our part to study humbly his words so that we too will have a big God and that we too can do big things for him. Let's pray. Father, let us talk no more so very proudly and let not arrogance come from, your, from our mouths. For we know that you're a God of knowledge and that you weigh our hearts. Father, I thank you for the new heart and for the new covenant that's brought in by Christ. We know that David failed. We know that Israel failed. We know that all before and after them failed except for Christ. Father, help us leave here tonight with a new desire to obey you, but let us put all of our hope and all of our identity in Jesus, the son of David, the true shepherd king of Israel, who obeyed and died on our behalf. Let him receive all glory, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.